Welcome to Life Center Church. We hope you enjoy this message. For more information about this podcast and our church, visit lifecenternyc.com. Amen. Good morning, everyone. I, uh, I'm going to tell you, I, something was going on this morning in worship, and uh, it's got me thinking a lot. Um, <laughs> I, I just feel like, I just want to call out what I, what I felt. I just feel, even as we were worshiping this morning, I saw, it was like, like the spirit of fear was, was lifting in the room. And it, it's something that, you know, is a, is a, it oppresses our city um, so much in the past two years. This spirit of fear has been just hovering over, you know, many places, but I felt it in this city a lot. And I just feel like even in the room today, the Lord was challenging that spirit of fear personally. And we're also releasing it corporately for the city. But personally, I want to encourage you because I, I, I saw it and I felt it myself and I bet you did too. There's areas in your life where the Lord would challenge where we're agreeing with fear or we're agreeing with the things in the world that don't line up with his word and who he is. And and I felt him doing that so strongly today. And so I encourage you, take note of that. Like take, It was an aggressive sort of posture. And I, I mean that term very intentionally. It was aggressive because the Lord will have his way. And, and when, when we align with what he's saying, when we, when we worship him, it, you can feel the, um, like Tammy was saying, it was like this victorious sort of posture rising up in you. And it's the spirit of God in you. And it's truth. It's his truth that's like maturing or like speaking louder than whatever the world around you has been speaking to you. And it's and, and so important that we take note and we steward that because God is speaking. All right. Um, so this morning, uh, the, to- the topic for my message is called the covenant keeping God, the covenant keeping God. And if I would have like a subtitle for it, it would be finding security in God's covenant during times of chaos, finding security in God's covenant during times of chaos. And there's something about, I, I, this thing came to my mind today. It's like, I want to be covenant conscious. God, would you make me, make all of us today more covenant conscience? Make us aware of what Jesus has paid for, of the new covenant that we as believers are now under. If you receive Christ, you're part of a new covenant. I'm going to get into that today, what that means. If we're conscious of that covenant, if we're aware of that reality, these spirits of fear, things that would try to come and hinder your peace, that would try to come and destroy your life, they have no hold on you because there's an aggressive reality that is the covenant of God, that is the blood of Jesus shed for you, that challenges every one of those lies. And, and, and you become so aware of that covenant that when something comes in that would try to steal your peace, steal your joy, tell you that you're, you're not worth anything, tell you your life is going to fall apart, that covenant reality comes and it squashes that lie. It, I, I, was, um, I was skiing this week. I haven't skied in about a decade. And um, my wife snow, was snowboarding. It was glorious. I've never even seen her. She owns a snowboard. First time I saw it. But, y- you know, I haven't skied in a long time. But your, your muscles become, they're just, they remember how, how to ski, right? Even though it's been a decade. And so you're out there and you're, 
I'm going to try to ski for you here. And you're carving, and all of a sudden your brain reengages with how to do it. And I'm like, oh, wow, I can go down a black diamond. Like, I can, I can, and then, of course, I fell because it's been a decade. But, but, like, I can do things I didn't realize I could do because there's a memory in, there's a muscle memory. And how many of you know you can get into that when it comes to covenant truth? Because some of us, we know the truth of what Jesus did in our life, but then we forget it. But we can go back to that place. And when you tap into that, all of a sudden, the memories, the reality of what Jesus did for you hit home and it, it destroys those lies that would try to come in and invade. And, and so there's, there's something in that. Um, but I'll say this. So, so growing up, you know, I was just with my family. They were here for the holidays. And what I, what I love about my family is they have always been very true to their word. So my parents, if they tell you they're going to do something, boy, they're going to do it. And, and that gave me, like, such a great foundation for life. Um, and so I can remember, I remember my first concert I ever went to, and some of you are going to be like, oh, yeah, I, that's, I wish I was there. Billy Ray Cyrus, you guys. That's right. He sang Achy Breaky Heart, and it was at the county fair, and it was, I'm from the South, so you just figured me out right there. <laughs> Um, so I remember going, and my mom said, well, I'm going to take you to, the, to it. It's going to be this week. It's going to be on this date. So I marked my calendar. I'm ready. And how many of you know, there was nothing that was going to stop me. I knew my mom was getting me to that Billy Ray Cyrus concert. We were going to sing Achy Breaky Heart to the top of our lungs. It was going to be great. And we did. Because I knew if my mom said it, it was going to happen. She was going to deliver on her word. Same thing happened when I got chicken pox. How many remember the chicken pox? It used to be a thing. And it's covering my body. And my mom said, don't touch that chicken pox. I will get you a guitar. I will get you a microphone. Just don't scratch that chicken pox. And how many of you know, I didn't touch. I didn't scratch a single chicken pox. Because I knew that if I obeyed, I would get what my mom said I was going to get. I knew it. I knew her word was true. I could trust it. I could count on it. And so I didn't, I didn't scratch. And I don't have any chicken pox scars. Thank you, Jesus. But how many of you know that that's not normally the way people operate in the world. They don't normally operate that way. And I found out really quick that that's not how people operate when I got into the real world and I, I, I started, you know, working and I'm, I'm in a corporate, you know, sort of environment and all of a sudden people are lying to me. Can you believe it? They're lying to my face and they're stabbing me in the back and they're telling me one thing and they don't mean it. They mean something else. And so I'm like, what? Like, my whole world was in this bubble of my family where words were what you meant. And now I'm being thrust into a different world, and words aren't what you mean anymore. And so it, it started messing with me. And my boss is like, you're naive. Like, you're a moron. Like, why do you keep believing these people? Because like, that's what my parents taught me. Like, that's all I know is to be true to what you say and, and, and follow through. That's all I know. But how many of you know that if you're in that culture for long enough, if you're in that environment, you begin to think this is how I operate. This is how everybody operates. And you begin to get jaded. You can get real jaded. And some of you, you know it. You live in that environment every day in your work. And you can start thinking that this is how to operate. This is how to get by in life. And even worse, you can start thinking that everybody operates this way. I can start thinking my parents actually operate this way. Maybe they're not who I thought they were. 
Maybe they're not true to their, maybe they're manipulative just like everybody else that I've come across. I can start to believe that. And it can erode my trust in my parents. And it can erode my own ability to hold on to my word and hold on to my values. Because I'm in a culture that says your word is not your bond. Do anything you need to get ahead. That's how to live. That's how to operate. So I, I wrestled, I grappled with that for many years. I grappled with these two different realities. But how many of you know, how much more can we grapple with that when it comes to God? How much more can we grapple with, is God faithful to what he said he'll do? When your whole world around you, most people aren't faithful to what they say. They say one thing and they do another. And we can start attributing that to God himself. And it's very subtle. But it can happen, especially when you live in a culture and environment like many of you live in, in your work every day. But God is not like men. He is faithful to every single thing he says. He will fulfill every tiny thing he's ever said he will fulfill. And I'll prove it to you today. I'll prove it in his word. Everything he says he's good to deliver on. Everything. Everything. I'm stressing that because it's so hard sometimes to believe because we don't have good examples in our current world. See, God's heart and his nature, it doesn't change. And he is a covenant-keeping God. A covenant-keeping God. And I'll get into more what that means. So what is, what is a covenant? What, what it, is this term? Often, you know, I got to do a few weddings last summer, which was fun. And so I got to dig into, um, you know, this topic of covenant. Because the greatest, you know, example that we often have in the modern world of covenant is between a man and a woman um, is when it is marriage, the covenant of marriage. And so a covenant, what it means is a, it's a coming together. It's a commitment to one another. Um, it's also called an intermingling because literally, if you think about a marriage, two become one. There's an interconnectivity that happens in covenant. And it's, so it's two or more parties that come together and make a contract or agreement on promises, stipulations, privileges, and responsibilities. So it's this contract, if you will, but it's so serious, it's so binding that it, it kind of blows our mind because we're not, once again, used to that in the modern era of a contract of this magnitude that God will not, he will not revoke it. He is true to his word, and in fact, he, he promises on his very name to be true to his covenant. And how many know God can't lie? So it's going to happen. <laughs> so the Hebrew word for covenant actually means to cut. So when you, when you form a covenant, you cut a covenant. And now that, to just to give you a little more picture of that terminology, um, they would cut, and back in the Old Testament, they would cut an animal in half. And you see this when God and Abraham, it's one of the most famous covenants ever made, when they form a covenant, they cut animals down the middle, and they separate the animals on either side, and they walk together through these animals. They, God cut a covenant with a man named Abraham. God cut a covenant with a man. Let's just think about that for a minute. God, omnipotent, all-powerful, all-knowing. You and I, we know who we are. We're weak, broken people. And God said, I'm going to cut a covenant. I'm going to commit myself to these people. 
That is an astounding reality. That says a lot about who God is, just in the very fact that God would forge a covenant with people, with broken, weak people, and say, I'm going to commit myself to them. It, it's, it's mind-boggling. Um, so God decides to cut a covenant with people. And we see that this, the term, the, even the use of covenant if you read through your Bible, everybody's doing the Bible in the year plan, right? Yes, we're all doing it. We're going to make it this year. If you read through the Bible, covenant is such a central theme. It is everywhere. And it'll change how you read the Bible when you read it through the lens of covenant. So even to start the Bible, you've got, you've got Noah. God forms a covenant with him. You've got Abraham, and we're going to get to him in a in a bit. You've got the Mosaic Covenant. So that's the covenant we often think about the most. We're Mount Sinai, Moses, they got the Ten Commandments, all the list of rules and regulations. And then you've got the New Covenant that God cuts through the blood of Jesus for you and for me. So those are just a few of the covenants. There's even more than that. God forms covenant with David. There's all these different covenants in scripture. But when you see a covenant, when you see God make a promise, I want you to write that, underline that thing in your phone, highlight that thing in your physical Bible. When God makes a promise, you watch. Watch what happens in the scripture. Watch everything come around that promise because nothing will inhibit the promise that God makes. Nothing will hinder his covenant. He will fulfill it. And he'll fulfill it in the craziest ways possible because he's God and he's always true to what he says. Just look in the scriptures. It's, it's mind-blowing. So we're, I'll, I'll take you through some examples here this morning. Um, so Genesis 12. We're going to dip into Genesis 12. The book of Genesis hinges on Genesis 12. Why? Because the book of Genesis opens with a fall of men, with sin, corrupting the hearts of men, with, with, with all humanity kind of spinning out of control. And then in Genesis 12, the solution to the sin of man is now revealed. And it, the solution is God says, I'm going to form a covenant with a family, with Abraham and his family. And through this covenant... There's going to be a door that opens to redeem humanity, and eventually that door is going to be the one that Christ walks through. But th that is the turning point for the entire book of Genesis, is Genesis 12, God forming a covenant with Abraham. So we're going to go to Genesis 12, starting at verse 1, and I'm going to read verse 1 through, through a bit. So Genesis 12, verse 1, the Lord said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to, a, to the land I will show you. All right, now verse two, make note of this. This is God's promise. So when, this is what I'm telling you about. When you see this stuff in scripture, write it down, focus on it, watch it manifest in the world. All right, verse two. I will make you, talking about Abram, into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse and all peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. We just skip through those statements so quick. That's God himself saying he's going to do something. He will do it. He will fulfill it. Verse 4. So Abram went to the Lord and, and went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went, went, went with him as well. And Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. Now notice this part. Abram, his response is obedience is faith. God just put himself under some extreme stipulations, and Abram's requirement is to believe, is to obey. 
God's doing the heavy lifting here. Abram's obeying. And Abram went. He went from a land to a land he did not know. And it says in Hebrews 11, this was, a, this was an act of faith. Abram believed God and was credited to him as righteousness. Is another verse later in, in Genesis and in Hebrews. Um, so he took his wife Sarai, his, his nephew, Lot, all the possessions they had accumulated and the people they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. Then Abram set out and continued toward Negev. Now in verse 10, now there was a famine in the land and Abram went down to Egypt to live there for a while because the famine was severe. And as, as he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife, Sarai, I know what a beautiful woman you are. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. They will kill me, but will let you live. Say you are my sister, so I will be treated well for your sake and my life will be spared because of you. See how the spirit of fear just entered in to Abram's life right there. He made a bad decision, but let's look what happens. Verse 14. When Abram came to Egypt, the Egyptians saw that Sarai was very beautiful. There you go. And when Pharaoh's officials saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and she was taken into his palace. He treated Abram well for her sake, and Abram acquired sheep and cattle, male and female donkeys, male and female servants, and camels. Gotta love those camels. So he gets all these blessings from Pharaoh, even though he's operating of a spirit of fear, he's, he's not making wise decisions. And we'll see this play out in verse 17. But the Lord inflicted serious disease on Pharaoh and his household because of Abram's wife, Sarai. So Pharaoh summoned Abram. What have you done to me? He said, why didn't you tell me she was your wife? I, don't, I did that in a New York accent. So if Pharaoh, maybe Pharaoh is a New Yorker. Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her to be my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And then Pharaoh gave orders about Abram to his men, and they sent him on his way and his wife and everything he had. Abram understood, he understood a few things. Like he understood God was speaking to him, but he did not understand who he was in covenant with. He was clearly perplexed because Abram goes into Egypt and he assumes that his life is in danger. But how many of you know Abram's life was never in danger? Pharaoh's life was in danger. Pharaoh was the guy who should have been concerned. Why? Because Abram is now in a covenant with God, and he doesn't even realize who he's in covenant with. He doesn't even realize the benefits, and he doesn't realize the protections that he's under. And so he actually puts Pharaoh in jeopardy of Pharaoh's life being lost, and God is now inflicting damage on, <laughs> on the Egyptians. Why? Because when you're in a covenant with somebody, your enemies become their enemies. Your enemies become their enemies. We would do well to take note of the different components of covenant, because you and I, we're in a covenant if you've received Christ. But like Abram, we sometimes have no idea who we're in business with. We got no idea. And we have to be covenant conscious to remind ourselves of what God's done and what we've received through Christ. So this word to Abram, who becomes Abraham, that's part of being a covenant as well, a name change. So eventually, Abram's name gets changed to Abraham because now he's in a covenant with God. And so he takes on God's very name. And so, so this covenant promise, how many of you know it doesn't end when Abraham dies? 
This is God's word, and it continues to today. His word always prevails, and it lasts beyond our lifetime. So let's fast forward. Actually, I don't know if I'm going to read it. I'll just give you a summary. We're going to go to Numbers 23 and Numbers 24. So you can turn to it if you want to take a look. I'm just going to share it, uh, maybe just talk through it myself. Um, So this is 700 years later, mind you. 700 years later, Numbers 23, the people of Israel, so the seed of Abraham, they are getting ready to enter the promised land, and they are, they've got all these promises of taking this land, which was just declared, what I read to you, Abraham was promised this land, and they are going to now go and take it. And so as they're preparing to take it, there's lots of other people occupying this land, so that's going to be a problem. So they're, they're getting ready to come in, take the land, and the situation, as the situation unfolds, there's a, there's a group called the Gibeonites. And, or wait, I'm sorry, I'm jumping ahead. So there's not a group called the Gibeonites. Well, well no, there's, there's the, the Moabites, and the Moabites are um, the people that are in part of the land that they want to occupy. And so there's a king, Balak, and he is the king of the Moabites, and he's like, oh no, the Israelites are coming, these are like the up-and-comers, and they're going to take over our land, this is no good. So he comes up with a great plan, I'm going to go get a sorcerer, you know, do some divination and curse these people so they can't take over my people and my land. So he gets this guy, Balaam, and he says, Balaam, you speak to the Lord, you curse these people so that I don't have to deal with them. So they go up to a high mountain and Balak is, you know, encouraging Balaam to, you know, give him a good curse, something real good that, you know, is going to keep him away from us. And three times Balaam goes to curse Israel. And three times, he cannot. Why? Why can he not? Because he's dealing with a blessed people. Why are they blessed? Because God has formed a covenant with Abraham, and they're his seed. And his word will not fail. It will not stop. It will go forth and do everything that it's positioned to do. And so, you see Balaam struggling to fulfill the king's mandate because you can't curse these people. They're already blessed. So I'll just read through it real quick. Um, Numbers 23, starting at verse, what verse is this? Verse 7. Balaam spoke his message, spoke, spoke his message. Balak brought me from Abram, the king of Moab, from the eastern mountains. Come, he said, curse Jacob for me. Come, denounce Israel. How can I not curse those who God has not cursed? See what I'm saying? How can I denounce those whom the Lord has not denounced? From the rocky peaks, I see them. From the heights, I view them. I see a people who live apart and do not consider themselves one of the nations. Who can count the dust of Jacob or, or number even a fourth of Israel? Let me die the death of the righteous that they may find that and may my final end be like theirs. Balak says to, to Balaam, what have you done to me? I brought you to curse my enemies, but you have done nothing but bless them. He answered, must I not speak what the Lord puts in my mouth? He cannot curse these people because God has blessed them and because God is true to his word. This is Numbers uh, 23, 19. We quote this a lot. I love to quote this verse. And interesting enough, this verse is given by somebody who's a sorcerer. Somebody who's on the other team. (laughs) And he declares this verse, this powerful verse about who God is. Numbers 23, 19. 
Balaam says, God is not a human that he should lie, not a human being that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? I have received a command, bless. He has blessed and I cannot change it. And he goes on to say, no misfortune can come against Israel. He goes on to say that he cannot curse what God has blessed. That is a powerful reality understood by, once again, a guy on the other team. <laughs> but he sees who God is. He sees who God's faithful. And he knows God's word is true and it cannot be changed. So if we jump ahead in the, the Old Testament, all right, so we're going to go to the, the Mosaic Covenant. So we're talking to Abraham, that covenant. Now we've got the next covenant, which we call the Old Covenant. And it, it's cut on Sinai. Moses goes up there, gets his Ten Commandments. Now there's a whole host of rules with this covenant, right? Different covenants have different stipulations. And in this one, there's lots and lots of rules, lots and lots of things to do. Now God's presence is now going to come and, and be hosted by the people of Israel. So that's pretty awesome. But in order to fulfill this covenant, there are things that they must do. And if they do the things that God asks, if they worship God and they serve him, they're going to be blessed. But if they don't do those things, they don't fulfill those obligations, they're going to be cursed. And so if you read in Deuteronomy, there's a whole list, Deuteronomy 28, of blessings and cursings that come along with this specific covenant, the old covenant. All right? So, but if we look ahead, if we look ahead, not only is this covenant troublesome in that there's lots of things for the people of God to do, which they really can't fulfill, and that's part of the point. Not only is it troublesome in that, but there's an equally troubling component. Deuteronomy 29, I'm going to read verse 1 through 4. And this is the real challenge that, these, that the Israelites had in fulfilling this particular covenant with God. Deuteronomy 29, verse 1. These are the terms of the covenant the Lord commanded Moses to make with the Israelites in Moab. In addition to the covenant he had made with them at Horeb, Moses summoned all the Israelites and he said to them, your eyes have seen all that the Lord did in Egypt to Pharaoh, to all his officials and to all his land. With your own eyes, you saw those great trials, those signs and great wonders. I'll stop right there. So God demonstrated his power and his love for them by wiping out Egypt, by bringing signs and wonders, bringing them through the Red Sea, delivering them now, heading them towards the promised land, and their eyes saw it all. But check out verse four. But to this day, the Lord has not given you a mind that understands or eyes that see or ears that hear. They've got, they've got an understanding now what's right and wrong. It's all laid out. God's given them all the details of what they can do, what they can't do. But the thing they don't have is a heart and a mind and eyes and ears. The in, internally, they're unable to follow through, to, to, to be obedient to the stipulations that God's given in this covenant. They can't make it happen because sin has corrupted them from the inside out. And they don't even become aware of it until they get into this covenant. Until they get into the old covenant and they're asked to fulfill it, do they realize they cannot. And some of them still don't realize that to this day and still try to fulfill this covenant, not realizing there's a better covenant, a better way. And that's what we're going to get into next. You know, when uh, I used to be in youth ministry, 
and we um, we worked with high school kids, and we would do these summer feel these summer trips. It was a week long trip, and through the through the course of that week, we would share the gospel. So we would share all these different stories about who God was, and and culminating in you know t- sharing about the cross and how Jesus died on the cross. But we would do this night, and we called it the sin talk that came before we shared about the cross. So we wouldn't tell people that Jesus actually made a way for, for them to be saved, that he actually died for them, that, that their life you know, has been ransomed by the blood. We didn't tell them that. We just took a night and we told them about how they're separated from God because of their sin. And we just left it right there. And that was kind of controversial. Like some people didn't like that. And it, it turned into a whole thing. But I'll be honest, I liked it. Here's why I liked him. Because I get all these young kids in a room, and I would share with them how they were meant to be with God, how they were meant to live with him, to be in fellowship with him, to have a covenant with him, to be intimate with God, but how sin has separated them completely, and they were completely unable to do it. They could try everything they want. They could be as good as they want. They could, they could, um, you know, they could be Mother Teresa, for cry, crying out loud, and they still could not solve the problem of sin in their life. And those kids would squirm. They would cry. They would be so depressed. And praise God, because they needed to be aware of their own depravity of their souls. They needed to know that they needed someone outside of themselves. And they knew it at, <laughs> that night. I'm telling you, there was tears. And, and, and um, I even tried this with my kids. You know, I told my, I told my daughter, Lilu, I said, um, you know, Lilu, you're on the naughty list. She said, what? I said, yeah, you're on the naughty list because you've got, you need somebody to intercede for you because you've sinned against God. God's perfect. And you can't be with God without an intercessor, without someone who to actually like make you clean and pure. And let me tell you, she was like, no, I'm on the naughty list. Like it really like, you know, it was very sad. Um, But then it led to these questions and it led to her understanding that she needed something outside of herself, that she wasn't good enough to actually, to actually be with God, to be connected with God, that he loved her, but she needed something. She needed Jesus. And so so the Mosaic law, you know, we, it gets a bad rap because we love the new covenant because it's so much better, but it's there for a purpose. And it's actually God's grace, God's gift to the people. And it reveals our need for Jesus. And so, so it's, when you're reading through, I'm going to keep going back in this Bible reading plan. When you're reading through it, look at it through that lens. Like, don't just skip over some of the, some of the sacrifices and the, and the things in there. There's, there's gold in there. God is revealing the need for Jesus um, in, in his old covenant. So even in the midst of the old covenant, there's a glimmer of hope that is, that is dropped into Deuteronomy. So Deuteronomy 30, I'm going to read verse 5 through 6. Here's the hope. Here's, here's God is saying there, there's a solution to this heart problem that I've just told you about. Deuteronomy 30, verse 5. He will bring you to the land that belonged to your ancestors, and you will take possession of it. He will make you more prosperous and numerous than your ancestors. The Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants so that you may love him with all your heart and all your soul and live. That's the key. 
He's going to circumcise hearts. He's going he's to give you the ability to fulfill the first commandment, which is to love the Lord your God with all your heart. You don't have the ability until Jesus comes in and, and shows you his love and fills you with his love and gives you the ability to love him back. That's what he's prophesying in Deuteronomy 30. So this new covenant reality, we, we see it um, mentioned all throughout the Old Testament. I'll read particularly Jeremiah. I'm going to read Jeremiah 31, verse 31. And, and here it is, like this, this, the, hope, the hope in the new covenant that's packaged and declared by the prophets, but which the people receiving this word do not know how this is going to be fulfilled. But God fulfills his word. He fulfills his promise. Um, Verse 31, Jeremiah 31, 31. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel. After that time, declares the Lord, I will put my law in their minds. Once again, he's mending their minds, our minds. I will be their God and write it on their hearts. He's mending their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and I will remember their sins no more. Massive statement must have perplexed the people that received this word. God, how are you going to mend our hearts? How are you going to restore what's been broken in the human heart? And we find out that he'll send his son, Jesus, that he'll put the Holy Spirit in us as a way to actually connect and hear from him and a way to actually obey what God tells us. I mean, it's, it's miraculous what he does, but they have no clue at that point. So I, I love God because, you know, and normally in a covenant, it's a bilateral agreement, all right? It's bilateral. So you're going to do something, and I'm going to do something, and we're going to both commit to this thing like we do in a marriage, and, and then we'll see, you know, we'll fulfill it when we both do our side. But with God, covenant is unilateral. It's unilateral. Here's what I mean. God comes. He does the heavy lifting. He makes the promise, and he says, I'm going to redeem your soul. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to be in communion, and I'm going to, I'm going to restore every part of your life that was destroyed by sin. And it's, it's on him to follow through with that statement. And we come, and our part is like Abraham. We come, and we have faith. We come, and we obey, and we listen. But the onus is much more on God than it is on us. The heavy lifting God's doing, it's on him. That is, that is crazy. Like, that, do you realize how much the Lord loves you? Do you realize how desperate he was for you, how passionate he was for you, that he would do everything he could, and you just have to believe him and trust him and obey him? And he does all the heavy lifting for you. He goes on the cross, sheds his blood. This is the God we serve. It's a unilateral covenant. So the other, I had an interesting sort of um, moment the other day. My daughter, Florence, who's, some of you know, she's like 15 months, and she was pretty sick and just a lot of congestion, like really just not feeling well. 
And in order to kind of get her feeling back better, right, I'm, I'm giving her medicine, I'm taking care of her, but she can't even sleep. Like she literally like is coughing and waking herself up, just unable to sleep. And so here I am, like nurturing her, doing everything for her. She's completely dependent on me. She's dependent on me to even sleep. So I had to hold her for hours just to keep her asleep. Because if you put her down, the congestion comes up and she's just coughing and she wakes herself up. So not only am I taking care of all of her needs, she's 15 months, she can't take care of herself, but I'm holding her continually and, and her ability to get well is totally contingent on my ability to keep her asleep. And she's in my arms the entire time. That, my friends, is the picture of the covenant that we have with the Lord. We're sick. We are corrupted by sin. He's, Jesus has the medicine we need. And in fact, he's going to hold us and give us the rest and the peace that we need. He's going to nurture us back to life. And we're literally, we're helpless like Florence. We are literally in so much desperate need. We've got to know how desperate we are for God. We've got to know how dependent we are. Because if we don't, we won't recognize how deep his love is. We won't recognize how secure his covenant is. Because it's on his power, his strength. I'm telling you, we got to get this stuff. <laughs> And I'll get into reasons why. So um, read through the book of Hebrews. I'm not going to go into it because I want to keep moving along. Hebrews lays out this incredible picture of how Jesus fulfills the new covenant by becoming the high priest for you and I. How Jesus' blood, you know, I said, I was telling you, covenants are cut, right, with the blood of an animal. You, this, the, a blood covenant was a standard thing back in the ancient Near East. And they would literally intermingle their blood with one another. So if you formed a covenant with somebody, you'd cut your hands and you'd shake because of that intermingling of blood. It, it, there's life in the blood. and it, 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 It's about the, the connectivity of one person to another. And so these blood covenants are what, you know, was transpired at, at that time, day and time. And Jesus, right, comes with his own blood to forge his covenant with you. It's not the blood of animals that saves our souls. It's the blood of Jesus himself. And he, sa and he said, I come with a body. I come with a physical body to be cut for your sin. And Hebrews so beautifully lays that out. In fact, I'm going to read it real quick. Hebrews 6, verse, verse 17 Actually, no, I'm going to read Hebrews 9. Hebrews 9, verse 12 through 15. This is about Jesus. He entered once for all into the holy place, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption for the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defile, defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer, sanctify for the purification of the flesh. How much more then will the blood of Jesus through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Therefore, he is a mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. So there is a great summary of what the book of Hebrews just really unpacks 
And that is that Jesus has now become the high priest whose blood is the only thing that can, that can actually um, stop the wrath of God, that can, that can bring peace and reconciliation, not just for you and me, for the entire world. He's bringing peace. He's reconciling all things unto himself. And so you and I, we get the benefits of it. In fact, the Holy Spirit is the first down payment of that. The Holy Spirit in us reminds us and reminds the world that God will redeem and restore all things. And we know it because the Spirit of God cries out, Abba, Father. We know we're reconciled back to God as his children. And that is just the beginning, friends. That's just the beginning. I mean, Rich, you know, last week, he was talking about faith and hope. And as he's explaining it, 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 it's so many powerful things that Rich shared last week about faith and hope. But how many of you know, we think about God's promises sometimes in our present culture. We think about, honestly, like the micro things, the, the small things, like God's promise to, you know, you know, feed me today, like God's promise to give me a job, God's promise to take care of my family. Those are, they're not small, okay, those are significant, but though we have hope and we put our trust in those things instead of actually looking at the macro. And the macro view is God, God himself, Jesus, died for our sins, walked into heaven, and he sits at the right hand of the Father, and he intercedes daily for us, and his blood covers us daily. And one day we will walk into heaven because of what Jesus has done. One day we will get to stand before God. And one day we will live on an earth that's redeemed and restored and made new. And every tear from every eye will be wiped away. All things that are unjust will be made right. That's the macro view. If we get so caught up in the micro, then when certain things don't happen or things we don't like, we don't understand, we lose hope when our hope is supposed to be in the macro. The micro helps. The micro helps us to stay engaged when things are hard and crazy, okay? But the macro is, that's the richness of what God's done for us. And that's the place when we get a hold of that truth, we will thrive in every season, especially the season we're about to enter into. You will thrive when you're covenant conscious, when you're aware of what God's done in your life, when you're so caught up in his narrative, it doesn't matter what's taken from you. It doesn't matter what oppression, what persecution, what, what disease, it, it does not matter because you are so secure in his covenant that nothing can steal your peace and nothing can derail what God's given you to do on the earth. We have got to get this stuff, you guys. We have got to get this stuff because we live in challenging times. And our job as a church family, not just the pastors, but yes, the pastors, but as a church family is to ensure that we are aware of who we are, of who Christ is, of what he's done in us, and that we fulfill the calling of God on our life in this present age. And there will be, a, there will continue to be a falling away of people in the faith. That is a re reality. And that's why we've got to remind each other of this covenant promise that we have. We've got to stay true to what Christ has done in us and remind ourselves of who we are in him. In a spirit of fear, I promise you will have no hold in your life. And so we, when we speak these things to one another, when we encourage each other in truth, when we read the word, it solidifies our souls. It gives us comfort and peace that nobody else will have. And they will be drawn to you. They will want what you have. They will say, why are you so weird? Like, why, why do you have this weird confidence? Why do you have this strange peace? Why are you worshiping in such a passionate way? Because my God cut a covenant with me. Because I'm secure by the blood of Jesus. And nothing can take that away. Nothing. 
there's going to be a there's going to be a generation that is so secure in this reality. I don't think it's mine. I think it's the next one, but I'm hoping it's mine. <laughs> God do it. Um, worship team, could you guys could you guys come on up? Um, so I wanted to. Um, ushers, could you all, I wanted to, I wanted to take this time to actually um, do communion together. So ushers, if you all could grab um, the communion elements, and we're going to distribute that. Now, I've listed three or four benefits of being in, a, in covenant, all right? And so I'm just going to list those real quick before we take communion. Because communion is itself a reminder of the covenant we have in Jesus. And so it's a beautiful reminder that Jesus gave us um, to do together to, to be covenant conscious. All right. So here's, here's four benefits of being in covenant with God. Covenant brings identity. That's the first one. Covenant brings identity. You see in the scriptures how when people formed a covenant with each other, they would exchange robes. And actually, David and Jonathan, if you look at them, their covenant they formed together, they exchanged clothing. Because literally, they're saying, you're, I'm yours and you're mine. Our identities are now intermingled. And so our identity with God, we, we had this, this mystical union with him that comes through covenant. So number one, covenant brings identity, like the exchanging of robes and also the exchanging of names. Number two, covenant brings security. Security. So you remember we were talking about Abraham and how Pharaoh was freaked out because he was messing with Sarai, and that's no good because Abraham is in a covenant with God. Because God's enemies, now Abram's enemies are now God's enemies. So in a covenant, you actually exchange armor, and that armor is to signify that your enemies are their enemies. So covenant brings security. Number three, covenant brings peace. And that's what we've been talking about with the blood of Jesus. The blood of Jesus brought peace. We were enemies with God. Sin had corrupted our soul, and we were literally against God. But the blood of Christ brought peace, not only to us, but to the whole earth. We, we benefit from this peace all the time. We don't even realize it's the blood of Jesus that even brings the peace that we're feeling this morning. It's the blood of Jesus that is the strongest thing on the world to bring the peace. And number four, covenant brings life. Covenant brings life. I read in Hebrews 9 how Jesus paved the way for us for eternal life, to be with God all the days of our life. And life is in the blood. So Jesus shed his blood so that we would have life. So I'll read them real quick. Covenant brings identity. Covenant brings security. Covenant brings peace. Covenant brings life. These are the great benefits and so many more of what we have in Christ. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let us take the bread.
In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. What an intimate way to express what Jesus has done for us. Father God, we pray right now, would you remind us of this covenant that we have in Christ? Would you remind us that you are a covenant-keeping God, that you will fulfill every promise, that you will redeem every heart that trusts in you? that you will cancel every curse spoken against your people. Holy Spirit, right now, would you give us confidence in this covenant? Would you give peace to every heart in this room that has received you? And would you draw those that have not received you to your throne? to the throne of grace, that they may receive mercy. That they may find themselves covered by the blood of the lamb at peace and at rest. I started off by saying how I feel there's very few examples in the present age of this covenant type of commitment. We just don't see that many examples. But I believe God's raising up a people, this people and many more in this city that have a, a covenant mentality for life. That what we say we mean, what we mean we say, and how we love and how we, our commitment to one another and to God is just like his commitment and love for us. Because we love because he first loved us. Because we're not just pulling up our bootstraps and really loving well, going after it for Jesus. We're falling in love. We're recognizing the love of Christ burning in us. We're doing the, we're recognizing the, the Song of Solomon um, sort of scripture, and I'll read it to you because I just love it so much. <laughs> and, and I'm kind of feeling funny up here right now because, uh, I don't know, maybe the communion did it to me. Um, <laughs> Song of Solomon 8, verse 6. Place me like a seal over your heart, like a seal on your arm, for love is as strong as death. It's jealousy unyielding as the grave. It burns like blazing fire, like a mighty flame. Many waters cannot quench love. Rivers cannot sweep it away. If one were to give all the wealth of one's house for love, it would be utterly scorned. See, this is the love of God that drives him to forge a covenant with people. It's a love that overcomes death. It's a love that won't stop. And it's a love that will have its way on the earth. Everybody, you stand for me, please.
Father, I pray today that we would be a covenantal community. God, that we would burn with that passionate love for you. Father, let us burn with that passionate love for you, that we be committed to you to the end, committed to you as you're committed to us. And I pray, Father, right now, would you give us the tenacity in our prayers to match the tenacity of your heart? Lord, that even as we, as we pray to you, as we, as we bring requests before you, I thank you that, that you remind us that we're praying to a covenant-keeping God, that you would encourage us not to quit, not to give in, not to give up. We're praying to a God whose love is stronger than death. We're praying to a God who keeps every word that he says. Father, would you remind us right now? Would you encourage us? Would you stir up this community in our prayers, in the depths of our time with you, Lord? There would be a rich confidence in your covenant. There would be a sweet, a sweet fragrance of your presence that guards our mind and our heart, that keeps us secure. In Jesus' name. I just pray right now for each and every person in this room that you would feel that security, that peace of being under this covenant with Jesus. Lord, would you fill them with peace? Would you fill them with hope? Would you fill them with persistence, endurance, faith, knowing you're with them, knowing you'll follow through, knowing you're faithful? In Jesus' name, let's worship the faithful one, King Jesus. We hope you enjoyed the message. You can also follow us on Instagram at LifeCenterNYC or YouTube at LifeCenterChurchNYC.